we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Genesis. We're going to dive right into our text. Admittedly, we are midstream, in the middle of a story. Everything is archived. You can get caught up. I think you'll put the pieces together. Our main character is Joseph. We've been looking at his life. Joseph ends up being sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. While in Egypt, he is the ultimate rags-to-riches story. Goes from a prisoner, ascends to being the second most powerful man in the land, preparing not just Egypt but the world for a great famine. His brothers, thinking he's dead, come to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Where we left things off was the final revealing. There had been several exchanges. Things had been going on. And then finally, as you get into chapter 45, Joseph's had enough. He kicks everyone out of the room, and he turns to his brothers. And in Hebrew, he says, I am Joseph. And they're admittedly a bit freaked out by that. And yet the words that Joseph shares are tender and so gracious. Don't be grieved. Don't be angry. Yes, you sold me into slavery. But God sent me here. God took your ill will to accomplish his will. Not just for me and not just for you, but for the whole world. God exalted me to be a savior. It's a powerful story. Well, we dive into our text, verse 9, following his exhortation to his brothers. Joseph continuing, he says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, and his father is Jacob, And say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you. Lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there is still yet five years of famine. And behold... Your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. I mean, what? What a scene. After instructing his brothers to hurry home in order to bring their father Jacob up to speed with all the latest developments, Joseph is alive, he's not dead, and not only that, God has made him Lord over all of Egypt. Joseph, though, also knows that this famine is ravaging the world. It's going to last another five years. And so he extends an invitation for the entire family, everyone, to leave Canaan, Come to Egypt, and specifically, we're told, dwell in the land of Goshen. What a phrase. So much packed into a simple phrase. We're just told, after that, his brothers talked with him. Have you ever felt, reading through Scripture, that sometimes you're given way more information on things you're not interested in, and not enough on the things you are? This is one of those moments, right? I mean, to have been a fly on the wall for that extended conversation. What did Joseph and these brothers talk about? I'm sure if you're Joseph, you ended up talking about the last 20 years of your life. What happened when you went out of eyesight as a slave 
sold to the Ishmaelites. I'm sure he told them about Potiphar and the grace he had received in Potiphar's home. I'm sure he told them about that woman and how he had been falsely accused and ended up in prison. Joseph told them about the butler and the baker and their dreams. Spoke of Pharaoh's dream. Joseph no doubt explains how he ascended to the position that he had occurred in, in the land. What did the brothers talk about? It's a two, two-sided conversation. No, no doubt they, they talked about their father and how their father was doing. I'm sure they talked about their own wives, told Joseph about his nieces and nephews, how the family had grown, the whole clan. I'm sure at some point in the conversation, Reuben jumped into the, into the fray. said, listen, little bro, I just want you to know, those jokers, they sold you into slavery. The whole pit idea, that was mine. I was coming back. I was going to free you. They just didn't give me enough time. Judah. Oh, doesn't Judah have a tale of marrying a Canaanite, having three sons, having his firstborn marry another Canaanite by the name of Tamar. I'm sure he told him about how wicked his sons were. And how this woman, Tamar, after each son dies, keeps getting passed along. How he treated her unjustly. Judah probably said, yep, I wasn't going to give her to the third. And yet, I went and found a prostitute. It ended up being her. We had kids. Crazy story, Joe. To have been a fly on the wall, catching up on 20 years. Well, we're told that the report of all of these things was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you'll eat of the fat of the land. Now you're commanded to do this. Do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And Joseph sent to his father these things. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all of the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all of the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, 
the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Upon hearing the news that his son Joseph was still alive, we're given this interesting phrase. We're told that his heart stood still. For the last 20 years, this old man has grieved the loss of his son. Jacob loved Joseph. You know, I'm sure that not a moment had ever gone by, not a day had ever gone by when that old man didn't think about his son. To lose a child. I can even imagine that there was part of Jacob that blamed himself. It had been he who had sent Joseph to go check on his brothers. If only he hadn't have sent him, Joseph would have still been alive. Tragedy wouldn't have befallen. And yet, now that he's received word that Joseph was not dead, is alive, and not just alive, doing well in Egypt, his heart skips a beat. Could this really be true? At first, we're told that Jacob doesn't, doesn't believe them. That this story is so outlandish, too far-fetched, there's no way it's true. But he sees these carts and all of this stuff. And something begins to happen. He gains more information. His excitement begins to grow. His doubt changes to wonder. His son, his son was alive. And now Jacob, this old man, advanced in years, jumps at the chance to go and see the son who was lost, but is now alive. So Genesis 46, verse 1. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob replied, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Though Jacob here is determined to head to Egypt so that he can see Joseph, totally understandable, the old man does something very wise. Before just leaving the promised land willy-nilly, we're told that Jacob slows it down a bit. He goes to Beersheba, and he offers there a sacrifice to God. And it would seem, based on the conversation that followed, that Jacob, his whole purpose in doing this is that he had some natural, reasonable fears about leaving Canaan. First, don't forget that throughout the Genesis record, no good has ever come when God's people leave the promised land for Egypt. In actuality, things turn out so badly for Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, that later on in Genesis 26, God goes on the record to Isaac saying very clearly, under no circumstances, 
are you and the family supposed to go to Egypt? He forbids Isaac from traveling. Yes, there's no doubt. Every fiber of Jacob's being deeply desired to go see his son Joseph. But he wisely feared the repercussions that taking such a journey might have if God wasn't okay with it. He wants to go so bad, but he's just going to check and make sure it's part of the plan. You see, before making this move, Jacob chooses to consult with the Lord. You know, beyond his, his reasonable fear of walking in disobedience, I also think that Jacob probably had an additional concern about taking the whole family to Egypt. Now keep in mind, Jacob, Jacob knew a very specific prophecy that God had given his grandfather, Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord comes to Abraham and he tells him that there's a day coming when his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not theirs. And not just strangers, but would come to serve them and then be afflicted for 400 years. Jacob's thinking, God's been clear, we're not supposed to go to Egypt. Didn't work out for Grandpa Abraham. My daddy never went, it was off limits. Beyond that, there's this prophecy that's always been hanging out there that at some point we are gonna go and it's gonna turn out badly. So maybe I shouldn't go. It's why he comes to Beersheba. I'm longing to see Joseph, but I'm throwing the brakes on to just make sure you're okay. And oh my, that moment when God sanctions the journey. How his heart, Jacob's heart, must have leaped when the Lord says, do not fear going down to Egypt. Not only was it okay for Jacob and his family to head south, God even calms his angst that maybe he wasn't fit for the journey. He says, you're going to see Joseph. He's going to put his hands on your eyes. In the passage, God makes three additional promises. It seems aimed at reassuring these fears. Promise number one, God says, I will go down with you to Egypt. Like This was the Lord's way of telling Jacob that he had his blessing. I'm going to go with you. You're going to head there. I'm, I'm with you. It's okay. The promised land ain't my home. We have a relationship. That relationship will continue. The second promise, he says, I will make you a great nation there. Not only was the Lord okay with the journey, but the reality is that he's communicating to Jacob that this whole thing is actually part of his plan. That there's an intention behind it, which leads to the third promise. The Lord says, I will surely bring you up again. Here we find God reassuring Jacob that this trip to Egypt, the stay in Egypt, it would only be temporary. Which has a measure of irony, because temporary, as defined by God, is like 400 plus years. Now before we continue... There is a, a point of application from Jacob's example here that we shouldn't overlook. Friend, when facing the opportunity to move your home from one place to another, can I just encourage you to do something? Seek the Lord's blessing. 
before you do it. He loves you. He cares about you. He has your best interests in mind. Just check with him. Like, even if on the surface, everything about it says go. And like, you can't imagine a scenario where this wouldn't be okay with God. I mean, if you're Jacob, Joseph's alive, this all seems good. And yet, there's wisdom, friend, in taking time to come before the Lord and to seek his guidance anyway. You see, Jacob needed an assurance from God that moving to Egypt was not just the best thing for his life. That's not just his concern, is it? But that it was the best move for his family. Sad to say, so many pick up and move without ever really considering the ramifications uprooting their children from their school, their network of friends, their church, how these things might affect them in the long run. A move might be sanctioned by God, and it might seem great. There's wisdom in just coming and checking with him before you move. Verse 5, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, and the carts, which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. And so they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. They went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants. He brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. And I'm not going to read this list, because I'm not Hebrew, I barely speak English, and trying to pronounce all of these foreign names will be brutal for me, might be kind of funny for you, but we're going to skip it. All I'm going to point out is a bit of an outline of what we're provided here. Verses 9 through 15, we're given a list of Jacob's kin descending from the sons who were born to him by his wife Leah. These sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Verses 9 through 15, Leah, her sons. Verses 16 through 18, we have a record of the families of Jacob's two sons that come from Zilpah, whose Leah's maid. Two sons, Gad and Asher. Verses 19 through 22, we're given the descendants of Jacob's two sons that came from his beloved wife, Rachel. This would be Joseph and Benjamin. And then finally, in verses 23 through 25, we have the families of Jacob's sons that came from Bilhah, who was Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. Verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 62 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Then Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, 
since I have seen your face because you are still alive. As the family here is making the journey from Canaan, as they're entering Egypt, being led by Judah. Judah knows the way to the land of Goshen. That's where they were told by Joseph to go settle. Word reaches Joseph. Your family is returning. They're on the way to Goshen. They should be there in a few. Now keep in mind, it's been a couple months since Joseph had sent his brothers back to Canaan to bring dear old dad. This was a 250-mile trek. 250 miles down, got to get all the affairs in order. 250 miles back. I'm sure, Joseph, his heart was filled with a longing, an anticipation. I'm going to see dad again. Imagine the moment. He gets word. We're told that he readies his chariot. (laughs) He's completely giddy with excitement. I mean, this is the day that he's dreamed about for years. A day he thought for many of them would never come. Potiphar's house as a slave, a prisoner, thinking he'd never see his family again. And yet, not only has he been uh, built this relationship back with his brothers, but now his father's coming. Oh, man. As Joseph's thinking about it, he, he's a man, like, what's dad going to say? How am I going to break the ice? No doubt, gets on his chariot, he's making his way. The closer he gets to Goshen, I mean, don't detach the humanity, the more nervous I'm sure Joseph became. I love the phrase here, that Joseph presented himself to Israel. Like in, in the Hebrew language, the scene, the scene that this phrase paints for us, it's powerful. Like first, Joseph, he arrives to the camp in such a very public way that he could be seen from afar by his dad. This present, he presented himself. There's some pomp, there's some circumstance. He wants his dad to know that his son, that Joseph is arriving. As we'll see, he, the man can't see very well. So he wants to know, he's presenting himself. He's arriving. He unmounts from the chariot, and as he's making his way to his father, we're told he presents himself, or he literally, he bows himself, prostrates himself fully on the ground in front of his father. Now, now here's a man that all of the nation, when they see his chariot coming, they stop what they do, And they bow themselves. If you recall, the position that he had been appointed to, this was an edict by Pharaoh. You see that chariot, you honor him. You stop what you're doing, you see that chariot, it's my signet, he represents me, and you bow down before that man. Here's this man who along the journey people are bowing before, but when he gets before his father, what does he do? He bows himself. He bows himself. You know, in doing this, Joseph is presenting himself as a servant. He's presenting himself in much the way that a servant would to a king who's just completed a task that they had been commissioned. And remember, so many years earlier, Jacob had sent Joseph 
to go check on his brothers. And I believe that the way that Joseph presents himself, it's designed to communicate a message. It's as though Joseph before his father is saying, Dad, you sent me years ago to go check on my brothers. But God, God sent me to save them. And here I am, finally coming home, finally coming back, finally returning. Did I do good? Are you proud of me? Am I pleasing? The emotions here, they can't be contained. I mean, they just come flowing out. We're told Joseph wept on his father's neck a good while. <laughs> this phrase, now let me die. It, it indicated that Jacob was experiencing in this moment a final peace that had eluded him for so many years. Knowing that Joseph's alive, his family's whole. He's like, I'm at peace. I'm good. I can die now. Yes, Jacob is 130, but the irony of this statement is that he won't die. <laughs> He'll end up living another 17 years in Egypt. Little overkill. Verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh... And say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth. Till even now, both we and also our fathers. Do this that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, while Pharaoh had given Joseph permission to bring the family to Egypt, weather out the famine, Joseph had commanded them to immediately upon arrival go to the land of Goshen, Pharaoh would still need to personally sanction this final arrangement. This is what's going on. As such, Joseph, knowing that Pharaoh would want to speak with his brothers, these men, Knowing that the Egyptians kind of held, they possessed a deep-seated animosity, really a bigotry, disdain for shepherds. In Egyptian culture, shepherds were viewed as the lowest caste of individuals. Joseph, he coaches his brothers up on what they should say. That's the text. Hey, you're here. Pharaoh's going to want to talk with you. This is what you need to say when this meeting goes down. Coaches them up on how they need to handle it. Now, it's not an accident that Joseph was determined for his family to settle specifically in the land of Goshen. Aside from Goshen being part of the Delta Nile, making it perfect for grazing cattle. It's likely that Goshen's geographical location played an equal part in why Joseph wants them to settle there. You see, the land of Goshen was located in the, north, the northern part of Egypt, on the eastern side of the Nile River. In a sense, it was an area that was strategically located, separate from Egypt proper. Joseph, it's, it's my belief, knowing that his family was likely to be in Egypt for a while, for 400 years, as God had told Abraham, he intentionally places them, he settles them 
into an area where they could remain ethnically separate. Like, like doing this, like there's some points to it. First, it, it would allow the children of Israel to grow into their own ethnically distinct nation, an independent nation, an independent people. But placing them outside of Egypt proper would also safeguard them from the influences of Egyptian culture, mainly idolatry. In a sense, Joseph wisely decides that they should be in the world, but not of the world. In a sense, within, but separate. Verse 1 of chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh, and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And Joseph took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. <laughs> I would have liked to have known which five. A couple of them, for sure, not a part of. So Pharaoh, he said to his brothers, What's your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we, our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to dwell in the land because of your servants. Have no pasture for their flocks. The famine's severe in the land. Repeating a lot of what Joseph has said. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to, have come to you. The land of Egypt's before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, Basically, if any of your brothers are like you, then please make them the chief herdsmen over my livestock. Now, consistent with this picture of Joseph being a type of Jesus, it should be pointed out that we see something interesting in our passage. The only reason these men end up being accepted by Pharaoh, the only reason they receive his incredible blessings, his grace, was why? Because Joseph had already been accepted by Pharaoh. Everything they received is on account of them or Joseph. It's all on account of Joseph. The blessings that they were being bestowed came on the account of a work that Joseph had already completed. These men hadn't earned squat. They're being blessed on account of Joseph, his work, and not them and theirs. In a sense, they received the grace of Pharaoh because of a work of Joseph. And how amazing it is that in Jesus Christ, you find the exact same thing. Not only has Jesus saved you from sin, death, but it's only because you're now a part of his family that you're afforded the incredible benefits that he earned. Being found in Jesus has benefits. God's grace is given to you because you earned it. No, it's given to you through Jesus. And man, the Bible the Bible speaks of incredible blessings that you have in Jesus. Simply because you're part of his family. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you just can. And you get it through him. 
As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we're told through Jesus, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not just on earth, but in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's all present tense. And every, in the Greek, means every. All. The whole kit and caboodle. It's yours. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You're given it because of a more excellent brother, Jesus. And beyond that, what's, what's also fascinating is the only way these men would receive such a dynamic would be through Joseph. Like Joseph is the perfect, he's the only mediator that would yield such a result. How interesting that in Jesus, he's the only mediator. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle Paul wrote, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And then he just says, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So Joseph brought in his father Jacob, set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now back in Genesis 45 verse 8, after his initial unveiling, Joseph makes a very interesting statement that we didn't have time to look at. But he says to his brothers, he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And God has made me, check this out, a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Now, what makes this phrase a father to Pharaoh so compelling is that it communicates a reality that on account of everything that had happened, Joseph had come to occupy not just a professional place in the life of Pharaoh, but a personal place in this man's life. And if you consider the reality that Joseph had undoubtedly witnessed to his servant, the servant that was going back and forth with his brothers, who when they're freaking out, he's encouraging them to have faith in the living God. Joseph didn't keep his faith a secret. He told everyone, converts, already evidence of such. My opinion is Pharaoh, this phrase of father to Pharaoh, spoke of a, of a spiritual relationship, that Pharaoh was a believer. I think we'll meet Pharaoh in heaven, this Pharaoh. Not a lot of them, but this one which then kind of explains why it would be important for Joseph to bring his, his dad to Pharaoh. It's kind of peculiar. Like, adding to this idea, did you notice that twice in the exchange we're told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh? In ancient cultures, it was always customary that the greater bless the lesser. That's how it always worked. You see, by allowing Jacob, this old man, to bless him, Pharaoh is acknowledging that Jacob holds a unique position. He's a patriarch, a man of faith. In response to Pharaoh's question concerning his age, Jacob, he replies, he kind of bloviates, he says a lot of the same thing, but he makes this statement. He says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. 
just a fancy way of saying I'm 130 years old. And yet it does tell us something, doesn't it? This word pilgrimage. In much the same way as his grandfather Abraham and his dad Isaac, Jacob, he's come to see that this world, this reality, this is not my home, that there is more to what's going on around me. Jacob has come to see himself as nothing more than a pilgrim, a sojourner passing through. And while that's profound in and of itself, and in surmising his life as a pilgrim, Jacob acknowledges the sustaining power of God's grace. Like, look back at the text. He says, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. What he's basically saying is he's saying that his journey as a pilgrim, he's acknowledging that it's been filled with more missteps than triumphs. And we've been looking at Jacob's life, and we can attest that that's a reality. How thankful, friend, we should all be that this pilgrimage we're on is one of faith and not our works. You see, while you and I, while we may be running a race, how thankful we should be that it is Jesus and he alone that will carry us across the finish line. So Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number and their families. Verse 13. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they, they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians come to Joseph and say, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestocks, and I will give you bread for for your livestock, if the money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, their flocks, the cattle of herds, for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to Joseph the next year, and they said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone, and our Lord has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. The priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Historically, something happens in Egypt. We know this from, from a lot of the ancient writings. 
The Egyptians were landowners, autonomous. And then something happens where Pharaoh owns all the land. Like, you, you actually see this in studying Egyptian history. And, and wise men, scholars, have no idea how in the world it went from private land ownership to now Pharaoh having complete sovereignty over all of Egypt. If they would just read this chapter, they would understand how that transition occurred. The famine's so severe, Joseph has all of the money, has all of the livestock, has all of the land. Egypt will emerge, and specifically Pharaoh, from this famine, a global superpower. Then Joseph, verse 23, said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow in the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field for your food and for your households and for food for your little ones. And they said, you saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, Moses says, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and mightily and multiplied exceedingly. There is no doubt that old Joe is one sharp, shrewd cookie. He's quite the businessman. Not only does he have everything, but Joseph knows something is coming. Harvest. It's the sixth year of the famine. Meaning, the famine's about to end. Rains will come. The soil will be replenished. A harvest. And knowing that this is on the horizon, Joseph, he sets up a new public order. You might call it a new deal for Egypt. Though Pharaoh owns the land, Joseph makes an interesting suggestion. He says, yeah, we own the land, but you know what? You can have the land back. We'll own it, but you can have it. And here's seed that you can use and you can plant. The deal here, you, you, can, you can live on the land, you can use the land, we'll give you the seed for the land, we just want 25%. And you're left with the remaining four-fifths. You can do whatever you want to with it. You can feed your families, you can sell it, you can buy, you can trade, it's yours. 20% flat tax. Now, while all of this is going on, the new deal for Egypt, Egypt proper, Moses shifts, doesn't he, at the very end? He, he tells us that Israel, while Egypt is getting gouged, Israel flourishes. Like they end up benefiting greatly under an arrangement that they had already made in the second year of the famine with Pharaoh. Like not only does it appear that their wealth grew, but we're told that the family of 70 began to multiply exceedingly. And note, 400 years later, during the Exodus, Israel will number 600,000 men, bringing the total population of Israel into the, into the millions. And there's another first you should take note of. Verse 27 is the first time in the Bible that Israel is used not to just describe Jacob, a specific individual person, but is now being used to describe a group of people. Israel is a man, 
It's now being used to describe a people, a family. The children of Israel are the children of Jacob. The 12 tribes are the families descending from each of Jacob's sons. Now, in closing, I'm running out of time, so I want to make this quick. But I do want to draw, I think, I think there's something powerful here. I think that there's a parallel we shouldn't overlook. A parallel between the Egyptian people and the children of Israel and how they both relate to Joseph and to Pharaoh. I think the text is designed to set up this parallel as it pertained to the family of Israel. We find a group who in response to the grace demonstrated to them by Joseph, do what? They gladly and they freely serve Pharaoh and Goshen, right? They're given grace and they serve. As a result, they prospered. And yet, the same can't be said about the Egyptians. Notice in verses 23 and 24, Though Pharaoh owns all, Joseph does something amazing. He graciously, he doesn't have to, but he graciously gives the people seed to sow in the land, suggesting then that a natural response should be what? A one-fifth return back to Pharaoh. And yet, notice, following this retort in verse 25, so he sets up this deal. We own the land. We own it all. But here, here's seed. Here's the deal. We're going to give you this seed. You enjoy it. You can have the land back. You can plant. Have fun. There's a no strings attached proposition. And response, we think we should get 20% back. But look at how they reply. They said, you saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. The irony, they had already received favor in the sight of their Lord, or he wouldn't be giving them seed or land. And as a result of this, what does Joseph do? Well, we find another first in the Genesis of grace. Joseph turns his initial suggestion into what? A law over the land. Well, it's clear that both groups had been saved by Joseph. Ironically, each end up having a very different relationship with he and Pharaoh. The Egyptians sought to earn the favor of Joseph, his grace, by pledging to serve Pharaoh, while the Israelites simply enjoyed the favor of Joseph, his grace, and in turn served Pharaoh freely. The results... One group ends up prospering, while the other group finds themselves under the obligation and bondage of law. Understand, all human attempts to earn Jesus' favor through service necessitate law. I'll repeat that. All human attempts to earn Jesus' favor through service necessitate law. And here's why. Law is the only way to establish the success or the failures of one's works. Sadly, these Egyptians created their own bondage because they were unwilling to accept, to receive Joseph's favor. Instead, in their pride, they wanted to earn it by serving. 
sadly, so many Christians fall prey to the same trap. And yet, if Jesus' favor, like Joseph's, is not something that you're trying to earn, like the Israelites, it's given to you on account of what? His work and the fact you're with him. Then at that point, since there's no obligations, I'm totally free to serve God, not because I have to. But I get to serve God now as a natural manifestation or a response to his goodness. Like in such a dynamic, friend, there's no need for law. The bondage of expectations that result. Why? Because in grace, your efforts matter not. They don't matter. Christian, this morning, here's the exhortation. If you're seeking Jesus' favor through your service to God, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to use law to demonstrate your insufficiency. You know, you know, the irony of legalistic churches is they're also not successful churches. Creating a moral structure to get to God is God's way of making sure you know you can't do it. Well, we've got these rules and these rules and that rule and this rule and that, blah, blah, blah. Great, just to let me know I'm not any good. Appreciate it. And every Sunday I come and I get beat over the head, then I'm not good enough. I know it. I need something else. I'm not good enough. Never been. Never will be. And yet it's grace that says I don't have to be. I've been given it all. I don't have to work for it. God loves me and he cares for me and you. So much so he sent his son to die for you. You don't have to work to earn God's favor. And if you are, he'll use law to let you know you're not doing good enough. That's the purpose of the law. And it's with this in mind that because his favor must be received and can never be earned, that such efforts will always prove to be vain and yield bondage. You see, the Israelites grew. The Israelites prospered in Egypt for only one reason. Unlike the Egyptians, their service to Pharaoh was not a mechanism by which they were seeking to earn Joseph's favor. Instead, their service to Pharaoh was a natural response of the favor they had already received in Joseph. <laughs> Can you find a better picture of Jesus and why his grace changes absolutely everything. And so, Father, Lord, we want to let that settle into our hearts.